Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and with me is Professor Alan Jameson. You all right, mate? Hello. Hey, hello. I'm fine. Sorry, I was a bit overzealous there. I know, it caught me by surprise. We'll dive straight into some news, and you've been teasing, saying that you've got some interesting stuff to share. Yeah, I had a good look in the old news the other day. I must admit I got slightly disenfranchised by the whole thing, given the number of stories that are either fallen to one of two categories. One is deep sea mining, and the other is scientists have seen something somewhere that journalists are desperately trying to make mysterious and creepy and all the rest of it. I mean, we started off talking about this on the podcast, kind of a bit of a joke, but actually it's starting to get to me now. There was actually some really cool stories buried in there somewhere, but it's knocked together in such a bizarre way that it's, I find it really frustrating. But one of the ones that did stick out was another squid story. Okay. You know, you like a bit of squiddy, right? It seems to be a running theme. Yeah. Well, this one relates to Archituthis ducks, or the giant squid. So I'm going to avoid the journalist's relentless desire to use the terms like mythical sea creature and the kraken and being mysterious and so on and just get down to the, the story. So this is a story that came out of Japan. They found or were working on a particular squid that was caught off Japan. It was the 116 kilogram female missing a pair of tentacles and only had one eye, but she was still beautiful. We'll call this particular squid Mrs. Ducks, right? So Mrs. Ducks had internal sperm packets from just one male giant squid embedded in her body, which apparently is very surprising. Because giant squid are solitary, so they don't come across potential mates that often. So it's thought that females would opportunistically collect and they actually store sperm from multiple males over time. And the guy who did it is a Japanese scientist who recorded as saying, we were almost confident that they were promiscuous. As if he's slightly disappointed. Because they found this particular female had a whole bunch of sperm packets in there and they're all from the same male. Because what happens is when two squid meet each other, the, the male uses what is uh, quoted as being a muscular, elongated penis and basically bites her quite a lot, apparently, and stabs her anywhere on the body and injects sperm packages into her. And this particular one had five separate packages. Three were on her mantle, one was by one of her arms, and she had one right on the head. You know, you're not even mildly freaked out by that. Uh, I mean, squid reproduction is kind of always intense. Don't they have enormous sperm that kind of roam around the body looking yep. for the eggs? Well, apparently it's not as simple as that. They were suggesting that they, it can actually store them for a rainy day. So it's not a case of the sperm roaming around the, the body looking for X, Y and Z. It's, uh, it's up to the female to decide when <laughs> the deed takes place. So does she Which could gather... be long after the male has gone. So does she gather those packets off her body and then sort of store them in some way or do they just no they're stored within packages in the muscle and somehow they work their way to some squid i'm not sure if it was this one or not, but some have seminal receptors next to their mouths apparently it's all very complicated and very strange but anyway so the japanese scientists seem to be quite disappointed but at the same time quite impressed that this particular squid managed to be monogamous fair enough funny what people work on isn't it uh, yeah it's, it's funny the sort of the interpretations i guess this is one of the few glimpses into giant squid reproduction yeah I mean, I guess it's much the same as any squid, they're just much, much bigger. But the other thing which is going on the quite now, which is kind of cool, is do you remember a couple of years ago, an expedition went out to try and find Shackleton's ship called the Endurance in Antarctica? Yes. They didn't find it because of all sorts of problems, and they're going back out in February. So Shackleton abandoned his ship, the Endurance, in 1915. It was uh, crushed in ice in the end. It's in the Weddell Sea in West Antarctica, and they reckon, based on locations given by the ship's captain, Worsley, at the time, they reckon... They think they know roughly where it is, and it's in about 3,000 metres of water. So oh. part of the interesting thing is that the, the wood, Scandinavian pine and oak, I think it was, they reckon it's still pretty well intact because it's deeper than sunlight. It's, they're seeing low oxygen, but I'm not 
that convinced the oxygen is particularly low at 3,000 metres. But anyway, and I was thinking about this because Adrian Glover published a paper a couple of years ago that I was involved in. We're looking for Ossidacs, the bone-eating worms around Antarctica, and we also put down wood packages at the same time and found that there weren't any wood-boring animals in Antarctica, which is kind of expected given it's an entire continent void of wood. But that does have, and we did write this in the paper at the time, that does have implications for things like this because there's a wooden wreck which would normally get torn apart by wood-boring species that sort of mechanically actually break it apart. And if they aren't there, then there's no reason to suggest that Shackleton ship might be anything other than pristine. Oh, that's cool. So I hope they find it. Really interesting to see that. That's cool. One of my housemates was a descendant of Shackleton. Really? Yeah, she still carried the name. And one of the vessels I used to work on was an icebreaker called the Shackleton. And I took her on, basically, and signed her on as a guest. So it was quite cool to see the logbook with... A Shackleton nice. signing on to the Shackleton. Did his descendants invent shackles? A ton of them. Boom, boom. <laughs> there was a big hoo-ha in the news this week that despite everyone being up in arms about what's going on in their business right now, India have just announced their deep ocean mission. So they have what I reckon is equivalent of £400 million worth of funding over the next five years to build submersibles and technology to go out looking for resources on the deep sea floor to exploit. Anna... Yeah, they're looking for polymetallic nodules, essentially. But they're saying that on this particular lot that they've been given, 10% of it would be enough to satisfy their energy demand for the next 100 years. There's some massive incentives at play. It's so complicated and there's such such money and change that could be made. Well, it just means there's another player in the business now, yes. I mean, they surrendered apparently 50% of the seabed to the ISA under some sort of contract. So they've kind of said, we'll look at this bit, but not this bit. And they're saying with the bit they're looking at, probably 10% would be enough. So I don't know. All big numbers, it's all very difficult to try and picture. But there you go. The point I'm trying to make is there's another big country who are getting involved. Something's going to happen and seen by the sounds of it. Yeah. Anyway, here we go. What's your news? My news was a little bit of a follow-up to a discussion we had in an earlier podcast where we were wondering why whales would would dive deep and we sort of had a paper ourselves about potential foraging and there was also the research showing that the the whale lice could actually tolerate very high pressure so the the theory that they're doing it to shed themselves of ectoparasites didn't sort of hold up so there's there's been quite a thorough review basically and it's not just uh, whales and dolphins it's, it's any large marine predators surface water predators why do they make these deep dives so it's mainly from tagged animals that included sharks bony fishes turtles and endothermy was quite common preventing the coal of diving deeper from inhibiting muscle function you know things like tuna are selectively warming parts of their body to ensure that their, their muscles keep going and i didn't realize that some turtles do that as well so why are they diving deep now? few different reasons theoretical foraging models would suggest that it would make sense to be diving and intercepting the vertical migrations so that the mesopelagic organisms that come up and down during each day's cycle it would make sense energetically to try and intercept them Interestingly, coming back to the parasite thing, there are parasites from mesopelagic and benthopelagic animals which end their life cycle in apex predators like whales, dolphins and sharks. It's obviously like an established thing. They're obviously feeding on these animals because there's whole organisms that have evolved to exploit this relationship. So I thought that was really cool. Some of the more unusual suggestions was that it could be for navigation, actually diving down to sort of calibrate geomagnetic orientation, particularly in things like the hammerhead sharks. And there was potential for it to be used as energy saving as well. So some negatively buoyant large marine predators may 
glide down over long periods and then power up and sort of do that again and again sort of almost going like a glider to to move along i didn't know about the uh the sound fixing and ranging channel the so the so far the region in the water column few hundred to more than a thousand meters deep yep. that reduces sound attenuation it's basically whale internet i'm nodding my head here agreeing with you as if i'm an expert <laughs> on this but i do know about this but only because i was at sea with somebody recently who told me all about it so <laughs> it's fascinating yeah it's crazy isn't it yeah yeah, there's this like um, great channel if you're deep enough. You trap the sound waves inside it. That's very cool. Yeah. The final one that was interesting was Predator Escape. It's a bit extreme though, isn't it? It is, but we've seen on the documentaries how relentless things like killer whales are. And if you just dive deeper... Just along... like pulling an ejector seat. Yeah. Like, I'm done. I thought of it as like an, an upside down flying fish. You escape your predator by going beyond where they can follow, really. There was one random reference in there, which obviously harks back to an earlier day where you could experiment in slightly more brutal fashion. So there, there is an actual quote in there. Experimental heating of the brain stems of restrained harbour seals during forced Ooh. dives resulted in sustained dilation of flipper blood vessels. Whoa. Every element of that sentence got worse than the last. Heating their brain stems. Oh, and they were restrained. Oh, and they were being forced to dive. So if they put it in a straitjacket with a... With a heating element strapped to his head. Yeah, and then just dropped it. Yeah, I don't think that's a recent study, hey? No, 1977, but I might have to yeah, look that go. one up just to see if it's as monstrous as it reads. I, I don't think you get your ethics what approval What did we truly learn from that, though? I was impressed that some of the sea lions get down to over a thousand meters. Yeah. I was impressed that leatherback turtles go down to over a thousand meters. I thought that was really cool. Never thought the turtle would do that. The turtles apparently do it really sporadically. It's not sort of regular enough to be feeding, so it, it's sort of more towards the orientation theory, because apparently the ones that dive deep are also the ones with large ranges, so the, the ones that migrate and have to uh -huh. cover large areas. Maybe they're just bored. So the ones that migrate the fullest are doing it because they're just bored. Really, really strange. Cool. So it didn't come to any strong conclusions, but it did sort of summarize all the data we have and address the likelihood of each one, basically. And it varies with the animal groups, as you'd expect. You know, the collapsible lungs that some of these critters have. So the turtles and some whales as well. I didn't know that other than just allowing the massive change in volume with pressure, they actually aid in reducing decompression sickness. As they go down, they collapse, but that collapsing stops gas exchange so it stops oh, right, them yeah. taking on the yeah. nitrogen at high pressure that then causes that the sense, yeah. away. Oh. Sort of purging themselves yeah really clever and then as they come back up the oxygen affinity of the blood drops during that last little bit so apparently shallow water blackouts is a thing so then as the lungs open up again that gives that last bit of oxygen right when you need it yeah. so i thought that was just like I, I understood like mechanically collapsible lungs made sense but i thought there was a, like a real elegance to that it solves quite a few of the other problems they have been doing it for millions of years i guess they got practice and the ones that didn't do it right are no longer around yeah <laughs> i get the deep diving bit truly do for all sorts of reasons it's this it's the whales smashing their heads in the seafloor i don't get it's the you know these whale pits i saw them again a couple of months ago off north australia really and looking very similar those sort of chains yeah you can tell it was totally a whale you can even see all the marks and stuff like that i just don't get why they would do that and everyone goes about oh yeah because probably chasing prey and stuff but there's nothing there really compared to where they've come from it seems a really bad idea to go looking in the middle of a football pitch for food you know what i mean they tend to be the beaked whales, don't they? And they're sort of yeah. deep diving specialists. And apparently they're weirdly quiet to not alert predators. So they're quite solitary. So that's why they're a bit mysterious. But their tusks tend to grow over the upper jaw. And so their snout essentially is a bit of a 
a straw, a bit of a snorkel, and they root around in the sediment looking for things. So I'm wondering if, rather than sort of chasing things near the seabed, if they're using echolocation or even just tactile senses to actually root around in the sediment, and that's what those little chains are, and they just sort of hop along. I still don't get it. Why not go down, if you're so good at echolocation, why not go down near the seafloor and slow down, swim along? Why actually smash your face on the seafloor repeatedly? I think that is them looking along because they're looking for buried things. I imagine the animal what? is sort of quite horizontal and it's using its snout to root around essentially like a pig, like a truffle pig. I don't buy that at all. Why no. would we go down there looking for tiny little pollockies? just seems utterly ridiculous. To go through all that for what's what might be a brittle star every now and again. <laughs> I, 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 I don't imagine it being it. a good feed, but then it, it seems to be what the beaked ones have specialised for. I mean, like I say, they, they can't really open their jaws fully anymore, or at least the I think it's just the males maybe. Ah, I don't know enough about whales. They've got like a straw, a bit of a proboscis rather than a, a big snappy mouth. Hello, this is Don Walsh, oceanographer and explorer. For this program, I'd like to talk to you about drugs from the sea or marine bioactive substances. For thousands of years, mankind has used natural substances for medicinal purposes. For example, common drugs such as aspirin, quinine, taxol, penicillin, and morphine originally came from tree barks, molds, and flowers. Folk medicine's long learning curve has been with us as long as man has trod the earth. The massive Amazon rainforest is still a virtual pharmaceutical mine, yet the number of drugs being derived from on-land sources continues to decrease. It seems that most of the major finds have been made. At the same time, the number of diseases that have developed resistance to previously effective pharmaceuticals has increased. The world ocean represents mankind's new drugstore. It is the single largest geographic feature on our planet. This is the place where most of the living things on our planet reside. Marine bioactive compounds of great diversity and utility are being found throughout the world ocean. It is estimated that more than 10% of all marine organisms have compounds that could be medically important. While bioactive substances on land come primarily from plants, in the oceans the opposite is true. Few come from marine plants. Experts say that chances of finding a bioactive substance are 500 times higher with marine organisms than from land-dwelling flora and fauna. Compared to the history of terrestrially developed pharmaceuticals, the search for bioactive marine substances is in its infancy. Serious work only began in the late 1960s. It is a daunting task, considering the millions of living marine species to be sampled and assessed. And since we've only discovered a fraction of the sea's flora and fauna, most are yet to be found. Nevertheless, over the past four decades, over 150,000 different marine organisms have been systematically evaluated for potential drug use. There have been some remarkable results, and a few substances are already approved for marine use. Recent research has found cancer-inhibiting bioactive substances in microbes that live in bottom sediments on the seafloor. However, marine invertebrates such as shrimps, worms, corals, tunicates, and sponges are presently the best sources of active compounds. This is due to their relative inability to move quickly, if at all, to escape predators. Instead of fleeing as a defense mechanism, they resort to chemical warfare. By exuding bad-tasting or toxic substances, they're able to survive in a very hostile environment. This same toxicity 
makes these animals effective to the drug researchers. The assessment process begins with the collection of quantities of the organism and then extracting the active compounds. The material is then assessed for clinically relevant properties such as antiviral, antitumor, antifungal, or anti-inflammatory activities. Once an activity has been detected, the next step is to decode its chemical makeup as the first step in trying to synthesize the substance. However, some marine-derived compounds are so complex that present analytical methods cannot do this. The alternative, then, is to look to nature for the supply. But the supply of sufficient natural material is a major problem. Literally, tons of organisms may be required to extract a few ounces of an active compound for research work. Clearly, this would not be practical when commercial-scale quantities were required. This dilemma is a good example of the considerable distance sometimes found between success in the laboratory and success in the marketplace. A more practical alternative may be to grow the organism in a mariculture or fish farming type facility where large quantities can be produced under controlled conditions. It takes many years and tens of millions of dollars to get a drug approved into the market. Once bioactive compounds from a plant or animal are isolated and tested in a laboratory, then actual trials begin first on animals and later with human subjects. On average, only one out of 250,000 compounds tested eventually becomes an approved drug for human use. While the first research on marine compounds began more than a half century ago, it is only recently that the first drugs from the sea are beginning to come on the market. Almost all the large international pharmaceutical companies are making investments in this research. It is not a business enterprise for the impatient or for those with less than deep pockets. Today, there are several compounds in their final stages of clinical trials. More than 13,000 patents for them were awarded between 1969 and 2014. Among the pharmaceuticals ready to launch are those for treatment of certain types of cancers and leukemia, mitigation of pain with no risk of becoming drug-dependent, reduction of inflammation and swelling, promotion of bone growth, and mitigation of bone loss in people suffering from osteoarthritis. So, if your doctor orders, take two clams and call me in the morning and do it. So that's it for now, and thank you for listening. I thought it was quite interesting what those nice folks on the last two-part of Space podcast were talking about, particularly the thing about NASA, Jet Propulsion Lab, having the slogan of Dear Mighty Things. It's brilliant. And that sort of comparing between the two disciplines, I thought that was amazing. Just because it's quite a bold and positive and lovely, and you could argue that you know very little about deep space. But they don't care. It's like, that's not what we're doing. That We're doing this because we want to dare to do great things. And then looking through the news articles yesterday, just like, ah, oh, here it is. We know more about the moon. Whatever X, pick a number, percent of the planets unexplored. No one knows anything about the deep sea. Everything's mysterious. Everything, you know, it's just really deflating and stuff. Like, this is just a waste of time. And they're like, no, no, we're going to do something amazing. <laughs> and not even explain what. I really like that. I think we should be able to absorb some of that into our own lives. We're going to do something exciting today. We're going to go to the deep sea and do something amazing. Which I think some of us do do like that. It's just the way it gets portrayed. It's just so miserable. Maybe we need a slogan. Maybe we need something motivational like NASA has. Yeah, just something positive, I think. I don't know how much is because NASA is such a singular entity that includes so many scientists and engineers that there is like a common goal. I'm sure there's like internal competition. I'm sure it's actually quite a intense place to work. But we are scattered in such small groups that 
you know, we might collaborate yeah. for a little bit, but then those same people are your rivals next week. Yeah, there's not an overarching marketing guy coming up with slogans. Yeah, and, and I just think it sort of breeds infighting, and I know there's multiple sort of attempts to unite us as a community, but unfortunately our careers are rewarded in the sort of individual level and it yeah. it doesn't seem as as inspiring or as much sort of camaraderie within our community because you you just have to to survive so this episode we should talk about something a bit more inspiring or something positive go for it so i've picked a subject which i think is positive i think it certainly has positive bits to it but the background to it and the, the fluff if you like on the fringes of it are maybe not so positive because it's a difficult one it kind of leads on a little bit from deep sea mining one it's about how the deep sea can give something back then that's always going to be slightly contentious and this particular one involves as many lawyers and politicians as deep sea mining does so bear with me i mean we've spoken before in the podcast about the legalities of ownership of the seas and that coastal states have 12 nautical mile of territorial waters which is 100 percent theirs and then they have 200 nautical miles of what's called an exclusive economic zone so they're you know they have the exclusive rights to make money and the 200 nautical miles off the shore which is why as I said, 40 years ago, all the trenches ended up in somebody's backyard. And it's this whole thing about what to do with the rest of it. And up until the 12 nautical mile and the 200 mile, I think it's relatively safe to say we know how that works. The big complication is what happens after that. The rest of the planet, which most of it is deep sea, right? So since the early 80s, we've known about this. It's known as areas beyond national jurisdiction or the ABNJ or more commonly known as the rather unimaginative, the area. <laughs> like really? It's, yeah, it's just illegally. It's just called the area. It's sometimes referred to as the high seas, and it's not international waters because apparently I found out yesterday that international waters is not a recognised term. But the area is. The area is, yeah. <laughs> so on the high seas, only the state under whose flag a vessel operates is responsible for enforcing international law. Whereas if you're inside the EEZ of a different country, it's between you and the coastal state to agree. But I think the area is just such a, I don't know. They should have called it something better, like the Great Oceanic Expanse or the evocative quagmire of inglorious majesty. But instead, they just went for the area, which kind of reminds you of calculating the area of an isosceles triangle at school. Oh, I, I went a bit sci-fi. Something that cannot even be named. Really? Yeah, yeah, like a, Annihilation. Good sci-fi area. So a little bit of background. Is, but basically, this all comes down to what can you can do in the area, even though it might be positive, it might still be seen as negative, but there's a whole bunch of legal framework around it. So the first thing you have is what's called the freedom of the seas. And that is basically gives anyone who's anyone the freedom to navigate around the world in those particular areas. There's no overarching organisation you have to check with. It also waves a significantly disapproving finger at wars fought in water, apparently. I don't know why they had to say that. Couldn't imagine anyone else was thinking of having a naval battle and sort of deciding we should do it in international wars because there's less paperwork. But, but anyway, the freedom of the seas was, was proposed by the then US President Woodrow Wilson during the First World War. And that led to all sorts of arguments. But the concept of the freedom of seas is now found in the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, which is UNCLOS, and that's going to come up a lot, and it comes up a lot in deep sea mining and fishing and everything else. So what that says is the high seas are open to all states, whether coastal or landlocked, and it gives a non-exhaustive list of freedoms, and that includes navigation, overflight, the laying of submarine cables, fishing and scientific research. But I found out yesterday, and this definitely requires more research, it also includes building artificial islands. Oh. So apparently it seems to be it's okay to build an artificial island as long as you're in the area. Do you get extend your national jurisdiction? Can you say that this is Do you is take the fishing ground country? around that? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's on the list of things which are on it, which I thought, ooh, let's go find the shallowest point of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and just start piling it up. Is there a limit to how big the island can be and what it can be made of? Could it just be that's like... That's why we need to dig deeper on this stuff. We need yeah, to find out some Like a telegraph elements. pole, just a stick sticking out the ocean and now we've got Yeah, and then you take your 200 nautical mile radius yeah. around it. Yeah. So there's this other thing as well, which is called 
called Common Heritage of Humankind Principle, or the CHP. Jeez. And this is another contentious legal principle in ocean shenanigans, and it was proposed by the UN General Assembly in 1967 by an ambassador from Malta. And that was to push for a reasonable deep seabed governance. And it was basically to disrupt or at least slow down any kind of colonial rush to the oceans. They were trying to prevent over-exploitation by particular states. So one of the things it was hoping to, to do was prevent coastal states from further extending legal presence or sovereign rights into international waters or the area, and provide legal platform for sharing the economic benefits of seabed resources among states. So this is where we get into mining and various other things. And this is what underpins a lot of the issues about mining and so on. The problem is if these resources don't belong to anyone specifically, or rather they belong to everyone, or you could argue they belong to no one, who gets the right to profit from them? So after 20 years of more arguing and fighting and pointing fingers and all the rest of it, the CHP was eventually merged into the UNCLOS, and that states that no state shall claim or exercise sovereignty or sovereign rights over any part of the area or its resources. Okay, so this is again where deep sea mining hits a rather contentious wall. And then there is more in the sea than just these minerals, right? So there's also the smelly stuff, right? There's biology, and there's the tiny wee smelly stuff, which is genetics. And that's what wasn't originally put into the law of the sea, because it's relatively new in the grand scheme of things. So one thing that wasn't really built into it in the first place was things like the conservation and sustainable use of marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, which is another acronym, BBNJ. So that includes access to and the use of Another acronym, Marine Genetic Resources, MGR. So this is genetic material derived from marine species. Marine species in the area. So the marine species that don't belong to anyone. Who has the right to profit off those if you can? So in international waters, this is all regulated under the Nagoya Protocol, which is a protocol that basically states that if it's in your 12-mile nautical mile limit, you know, it's all yours. If it's beyond that, you need to sort yourself out. But beyond that, it's still a bit of a hand-wavy lawyer type of thing going on. So where I'm going with this is the concept or the scientific discipline of bioprospecting or biodiscovery. And I used to work on this a little bit. I used to work on this quite a lot for a while. Not the actual chemical, not the difficult bit and the easy bit, but I was certainly embroiled and involved with a lot of biodiscovery people. When I was involved in this, I'm not really anymore, but I used to get a bit annoyed when papers and various white papers kept listing biodiscovery alongside mining, bottom trawling, climate change, certification, all these imminent threats to deep sea biodiversity. Because in reality, I used to take a lot of samples for people in biodiscovery, all legally above board, of course, but the, the samples they need are minuscule. I mean, really, really small volume stuff. And we've never taken a sample that wasn't already being taken for something else. They've always been minuscule subsamples. The samples I've always taken for, for biodiscovery are nowhere near anything in the league of what scientists were taking anyway, or even throwing over the side of the ship at the end of the day. So I swear, if biodiscovery was an imminent threat to deep sea, then again, so is marine biology. <laughs> it's like some of the samples we've taken, sediment samples for biodiscovery, have probably been less than what's smeared on the outside of the box core. And when the outcome is new antibiotics and treatments for some of the worst diseases we're facing. Yeah, so I always thought it was a good thing to be involved in because if it's no skin off my nose to stuff a couple of little bits in a jar and give it to someone who knows what they're doing, then great. So let's think about marine genetic resources in the context of the area which of course is where most of the deep sea is because it's all at least 200 miles off the coast. So now we're all looking at developing a system whereby there should be equal access and benefit sharing schemes, similar to the one for seabed minerals. So if you discover some billion dollar anti-cancer drugs, the idea is everyone should benefit from it. 
and that's where it becomes complicated. Most of the planet is the high seas of the area and the vast ocean expanse, which is apparently a hotbed of exciting biological compounds which could host cures for everything from cancer and Alzheimer's to new antibiotics to, I don't know, completely made-up diseases like spoonworm pox, which I made up this morning. It's all there for the taking, but only some countries have access to deep sea, only some have the infrastructure to develop these into meaningful and affordable drugs, and therefore only a few countries or nations could ultimately control and profit from them, despite the initial resource technically belonging to everyone and no one. And this is where it got, this got, I had a little insight into this. I had a little sympathy with this because a number of years ago, I ended up at the United Nations to talk about this part of the PrepCom thing. And I was there representing the, the coalface, if you like, of the, the boat, taking the samples and how they feel about this whole chain of whatever. And having spent three days listening to politicians and lawyers, I don't think I learned anything at all. But I read a couple of papers recently and I thought it was brilliant because we're in a situation now where academics are increasingly becoming embroiled in the legal aspects of all this, with many of them actually attending summits like the UN and so on. And the scientific influence, if you like, has been augmented because through direct observation and interaction with state and non-states over these issues. So they're getting involved. What I really liked was these couple of papers, and one of them was by an author called Death. You're going to have to bear with me here, Tom, and read between the lines, right? In a nutshell, multilateral environmental negotiations are inherently about power, interests, and authority, and highlight practices that make some actors more powerful while excluding others, and where drama and theatre are key elements of the politics of symmetry. These performances become visible in the rituals of diplomacy, including speeches, media statements, routine confrontations, which imply that the mobilisation of particular stages, scripts, cast and audience remains open to subvergence and conflict. So basically what they're saying is, scientists have just discovered politics. <laughs> when you read that, you're like, yeah. basically the whole United Nations is just a theatre of politics and lawyers. That might as well have come straight out of Dune. That might as well be the Bene Gesserit sort of talking about how to manipulate a whole planet. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and, and that's what I remember. I mean, I remember a lot of the stuff that was being said wasn't necessarily in the interest of, of the oceans. It wasn't necessarily in the interest of anybody. It just seemed to be arguing for argument's sake. But I guess that is how these issues are ultimately, you know, how something that Unclause is rewritten is because it takes time. It's very disheartening, though. Oh, yeah, I remember sitting the first day and listening to all these people argue and make their statements and all the rest of it and thinking this is not going to get resolved by lunchtime on Thursday. <laughs> and it's still going. So I was thinking about how big a deal is this? There's a 2018 study which I read and they revealed that they found 13,000 genetic sequences based on marine genetic resources from 862 marine species which are associated with patents. And it's quite a difficult paper to get your head around because it keeps throwing percentages and numbers and all the rest of it. But it seems like of those species or possibly sequences, 73% were bacteria. But 84% of the patents based on real-life sequences were held by 221 private companies, one of which, one particular company in Germany, hold 47% of marine genetic resource-based patents. And their argument was, who owns biodiversity? Do they actually then own that gene sequence? And if they've patented it, then I guess they do. They just discovered something, but this was a naturally occurring gene. They now have ownership of something that occurred naturally. But this is where my, my head starts to spin, right? Because when I read that, I'm like, ooh, ooh, that doesn't sound good. That sounds really negative. And then after a, a nice tall latte. A soothing latte. A soothing latte. Room temperature latte. Very milky. I was thinking, so what? You know what I mean? Does that actually affect me professionally or personally? If someone else has a patent on the full genome of a species I normally work on, does that stop me sequencing it myself? Or does it stop me publishing that in a phylogenetic tree? The fact that someone's gone to the bother to do this and is, I guess they're making money out of it, that's their business, right? Literally, that is their business, not mine. So... It feels morally and ethically not right, but then at the same time, I, I don't really care. If, if they can make a living out of that and feed their kids, then great, I'll do something else. So where I'm going with this is ultimately, I don't know. That's okay. I think even though we 
not sure how we feel about this. I think it's good that we've brought it up because I feel like this is just starting to enter the public consciousness. And yeah. you're right, your, your gut feeling to some of this stuff is a bit panic and like, oh, that doesn't seem right. But then once you try and figure out, well, why, it, it sort of loses momentum. And I worry that, well, I'm glad that we're sort of getting ahead of that maybe and people will hear this or find this when this starts to become part of the public consciousness. But this is the thing, though, because if someone's using these things to find cures for diseases that affect the entire world, shouldn't we be encouraging this at all times? In which case, why has it become such a contested phenomenon which is listed alongside the four horsemen of the deep sea apocalypse? It seems an altruistic quest to cure disease, right? I mean, I guess there are always going to be politics around these things, but I'd imagine it all comes down to power and money. Even for altruistic reasons, if, if you need a product, somebody has to make that and that costs money and people will need to be employed and have jobs. Uh, I'm sort of very up for being anti-capitalist and getting all getting all ranty on but these are goods and services and people will have spent time and resources and they expect to have a return on that it, it well, isn't I inherently wrong, i reckon you're just wrong oh just all of it all of it just across the board <laughs> well okay let's 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 play devil's advocate i reckon we don't know yeah because I, I don't know because I, I i've always been a big fan of biodiscovery because I, th I think finding new cures for cancer and new antibiotics or it should be done high speed as a matter of urgency and it seems like there's a lot of resistance to that or at least there's a lot of resistance in the, the way that it's being done and I guess it might be similar to oil and gas where pharma companies have always seen as being these big horrible bad entities that are only out to make money and but I don't know how much that's true and how much of that is just nonsense that's punted around in the press and so on and so on. So there you go. In all that, you have the FOS, the CHP, the UNCLOS, the ABNJs, the EEZs, the MGRs, the BBNJs, and the area. And it's all mixed up beautifully. So I think we should call someone who knows more about this than I do, because this honestly isn't one of those interviews we do when we kind of know the subject. We genuinely lost. Somebody genuinely <laughs> needs to straighten this out for me, because I, I feel like I'm wrong going, why is everyone bothered about this? I think it's a great idea. I'm obviously missing something. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe it's there. So we should get on the phone, and the person I'm going to phone today is a kind of an old colleague of mine, an old buddy, Professor Marcel Jaspers from the University of Aberdeen, who's a chemist, a biochemist, and was the head of chemistry department, and he's head of the Marine Biodiscovery Centre, and has been for the last 10 years. And he's far too many letters after his name to say them all, but I became embroiled with Marcel when he was a scientific leader of a 9.5 million euro EU project called Pharmacie, S-E-A, to see what they did there. Oh, that's uh, and he had, to, he had to deal with 24 partners from 40 different countries for five years. So very well established, but no one else I would rather talk about biodiscovery with than this guy. So let's give him a phone. Marcel, welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's all right. It's been a long time. I haven't spoken to you for... Ooh. Five years, something really? like that. Really, that long, huh? I think the last time we saw each other was my leaving day. Yeah, probably. In Aberdeen, yeah. For the benefit of the audience, tell us a bit about yourself and the type of work you do in biodiscovery. I'm Marcel Jaspers. I'm professor of chemistry at the University of Aberdeen. And I run a research center called the Marine Biodiscovery Center. And the main focus of that is to look for interesting molecules from the deep sea, cold oceans, and also from now from deserts and other places, other extreme locations that might be used to treat diseases, particularly cancer, infections, inflammation, and now, of course, viral diseases as well. One of the things that was, when I got embroiled in all this a few years back, was the terminologies involved. And we hear about bioprospecting and biodiscovery. And having Googled this, 
it seems that bioprospecting is what's referred to as the pursuit of natural products for commercial gain and biodiscovery is pursuit of natural products do interesting things just for scientific purposes. Does that still work? Is that the actual definition or is it the same thing? Bioprospecting is the one that's actually defined in uh, various dictionaries and also United Nations treaties. So it has, a, it has a formal definition. I can't remember what it is, but it is well defined. Biodiscovery is a word that uh, Chris Maddison and I made up in 2004. Oh, there you go. <laughs> to prevent... Um, People thinking that bioprospecting automatically led to the mining of the resources. That's the yes. deal. So basically what we're thinking about here is that the original concept was perhaps that you might go and find a wonderful uh, drug that cures cancer from a sponge and you would go back and collect tons of that sponge in order to make a commercial product. However, that's not necessarily the case. It's often the case that you take a, a small amount of the sponge, you find out that it contains a wonderful molecule that you want to develop. And of course, there's no way you're going to get enough of that sponge to make uh, the product commercially. So you develop a different process. So it's the concept that you get the idea from nature and you develop that further. So hence the, the word discovery. So biodiscovery rather than bioprospecting. That's why I thought that was, well, I originally thought it was the difference was. I always thought bioprospecting inferred that you would go back and do like bio mining, whereas biodiscovery was you just synthesize it later. So, okay, I guess we're agreed there. So, I've often heard the deep sea referred to as the paraphrase hotbed of potentially interesting biochemical compounds and, and so on. What, why is that? Is it the deep sea environment itself, or is it just the sheer size of it? Wouldn't it be easier to look at shallow water first? What is it about the deep sea that attracts biodiscovery? I think a lot of it is to do with uh, the fact that these interesting niches or habitats have allowed evolution to go in a different direction, and you find new strains, interesting strains. What's really important to recognize as well is that it's not just those strains, but also the skills you need as a microbiologist to isolate those particular strains. So you might have to have organisms that grow under very high pressure, which is really tough to do. More likely than not, you, you need to consider the nutrition requirements that you have for these particular bacteria. Mm. Uh, so you might be able to think about it, it grows in very low nutrient conditions or very low temperatures or high salt or whatever. So that's something that we, we forget about. So it's often the fact that we work with the best microbiologists we can work with in order to be able to get the most interesting strains. And it takes us years of experience of microbiology to, to get a strain that to, to understand the strains to such an extent that you're able to just tell by looking at it quite often that it's going to be something cool. And we've worked with people like Mike Goodfellow in Newcastle, uh, with um, Alan Bull in Kent, Juan Asenjo in Chile, and a number of their PhD students at or excellent to this kind of work. So again, for us, it, it's as much as anything, the environment, it's the fact that the evolution has probably led them down an interesting pathway. And finally, that leads to some kind of biosynthetic potential that allows them to make these, these interesting molecules. But in order to find that, you have to, of course, isolate the bacterium and isolate the, um, the compounds from that. So is biodiscovery in the deep sea a common thing or is it still in its infancy? And I seem to recall at some point you tell me that there are commercially available products that have derived from deep sea origins. Is that right? What's happened is that biodiscovery from the sea, uh, most of the work is, is on shallow organisms, so reef organisms. There's some things that have come from fish, pelagic fish, that literally just, you squeeze them, you get oil out of them, and that, that uh, prevents somebody having a second heart attack so that's an important drug for heart disease but for deep sea stuff actually there's, there's not that much out there that we can absolutely be certain of and there's a couple that i know for sure and they're not necessarily medical products so one of them is from a deep sea vent in Baja California, I think it's about 2,000 meters deep or so, and that is an enzyme that's used to replicate DNA. So it's a very high fidelity enzyme for polymerase chain reaction. Of course, we've heard a lot about that with the COVID PCR tests. That's important. And the other one is um, a deep sea vent bacterium that grows on top of one of these um, Alvanella pompeiana. It's the sort of um, yes. interesting worm, right? The tube worm, yeah. Yeah, it grows again in, in the trench just off Californian coast. So it's, it is outside of national jurisdiction, and it's used in a face cream as something that. Prevents 
prevents uh, wrinkles or inflammation. So it's an wow. interest, interesting one. So again, th- those are relatively minor ones, but of course the potential's out there for more to be discovered. So you, do you get the same effect if you just rub a tube worm in your face? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I also found really interesting, which I think would be an interesting thing to talk about, is the timeline involved in all this. The drug discovery pipeline, I think it's called. You know, if I handed you a vial full of deep sea mud with all the planets aligning, how long would it take from me handing that to you to a product being available on the shelf of a pharmacy or in a hospital? 10 to 20 years typically is the kind of time. I find that fascinating. I'd really do, especially after, you know, everyone's sort of freaking out about how quickly the COVID vaccine was developed. But I don't think people have a handle on what goes on behind the scenes in the pharmaceutical industry because 20 years, you think if you discover some amazing compound, you'd be like, oh, brilliant, this works. Apparently not as easy as that. (laughs) The kind of things that we would do is, indeed, is to try and, you take a deep sea sediment sample, let's say, something from the Mariana Trench, then you you bring that back. So again, that takes a few months to get to your lab. And in the lab, you would then try and isolate bacteria using selective isolation techniques. That basically means you you spread on a bacterial growth plate containing Mm -hmm. certain kinds of things that inhibit one strain and perhaps uh, encourage other strain of bacteria to grow. Once you've got them, you've got probably hundreds of strains on a plate. You need to select the best one. So what you do is you select those and try to purify them. And eventually what you end up with is a plate that has a single strain on it. You might have a couple of hundred of those plates from the same sediment sample. The next step then is to grow each one of those strains individually in small-scale culture and find out whether it has any talent. We just call it chemical talent in our lab. Oh, I like that. That's good. Yeah. We, we, we stick it into a, a mass spectrometer. We feed it typically on a few different media. So you might feed it on some that's low nutrient, something that's high nutrient, low temperature, high temperature. You might change the conditions a little bit, which you might end up with a thousand extracts. Right, so you've got to feed those all through the big machines to figure mm-hmm. out whether there is any talent there. And that, you know, there's a lot of automated analysis methods right now that you can use, but a lot of it's still hard graph by hand. So you're, you're stuck there with a few data sets that tell you that each extract contains 50 molecules out of those 48 are known and two are new, let's say. So that still ends up with hundreds of compounds that you might want to investigate. So what you do then is to take those materials and test them against diseases. And again, luckily, uh, we have good partners. For instance, Medina in Spain and the University of Tromsø in Norway are good partners for us to test against cancer, inflammation, infection. We have partners in Leuven testing against epilepsy as well. So again, that's really good to have those those testing partners. And they will take those through and, and tell you. So a classical sort of uh, strategy that we had for epilepsy. We started with 2,000 extracts. We ended up with seven compounds at the end that might be interesting. It's a good whittling down of things. Yeah. Out of those, two were tested in animals eventually after testing that they were drug-like so they could go through membranes, etc. They could reach the target. So they were active in zebrafish. Then they were proved to be active in, in mice. The challenge then is to make enough material. So again, this is the pre-clinical trial process. So how, how long are we talking at this point? This is two years to three years already, right? So right, okay. then you would take it to, uh, if you could scale it up, that might be its own challenge. In this case, it's a massive challenge because the molecules um, are difficult to make. So uh, we're working with a group in the Czech Republic to try and make it for epilepsy, scaling up to half a gram for multiple animal trials or larger scale trials. And then you would take it to, you know, if, if it passes those trials, you would take it to the next stage, which is which is to try and get enough funding for large animal trials to get into human clinical trials. Phase one is essentially, it tests out whether or not it's safe to use it in humans. So, so you, at this stage, you might have spent five years. So human phase one trials, you have to get funding for them, which is challenging quite often in, the, in a competitive marketplace. And you often need industry support. So if an industry is not interested, uh, you're not going to go anywhere. So quite often at this point, people say, well, let's find a company. Let's, let's start something ourselves and, and do this. So you find that the preclinical work and maybe the first phase of clinical work is now done a lot of times with small companies. And at some point, a big company will get interested in, in buying your, your stuff. So those initial clinical trials may take you a couple of years to get some mm-hmm. results that are decent. And then you need to raise the funding for the phase two, which is dose escalation typically. I mean, 
each clinical trial is different and each each type of sure, indication yeah. is different. So you, you can't really say much. But often it's something like dose escalation trials, which is where you, you figure out whether the drug is effective against the disease and whether or not a particular dose is better than other doses. And that could take two to three years again. And you might still be running some phase one clinical trials in the background. You might run the phase two. And if you get an approval through that stage, and again, the attrition rates are very high at this point. So out of maybe 2,500 compounds going into the pipeline, you get one coming out the far end, right? So it's a really right. it's, it's a really big attrition rate. And then you might get to phase three if you're lucky. A phase three says basically we're going to do a multi-center international clinical trial with thousands of patients or at least several hundred of patients. Mm -hmm. And that could cost you tens of millions, if not more, to run. Wow. So that, again, the cost is phenomenal to get that done. If it's a long-term disease like... Alzheimer's, you might have to do a trial that lasts months and months and months compared to something like infections where, you know, if you treat the patient and they're clear of disease after two weeks, you've, you've proved the fact. So it's different for different diseases. Take you several years and then you would have to ask for approval and that would take you another couple of years. So again, what happened in the COVID vaccine is that those committees were primed to receive the data for the assessment. So again, Normally, it would take you up to 18 months unless it's a priority approval. In this case, it went through the British equivalent, the European equivalent, the American equivalent in record time because the data was there and they compressed all the phases of the trials together. Basically, they basically had all yeah. the money in place. Money was guaranteed and they were able to run phase one, phase two, phase three almost simultaneously, which is remarkable. But in this case, so what you've got is somewhere between nine to 10 years for uh, antibiotic, let's say, to 20 years for cancer drug is you know, classically the time that it takes. And again, a lot of this is disjointed. A lot of it's disconnected. A doesn't know what B is doing sometimes, and it's really difficult to follow sometimes. So I actually try to follow some of these things through the literature. And I have a couple of examples where I've just written out everything that I know about these drugs on a page. It's just been sent as a report to a, an agency, and hopefully that will be published soon. So we can actually see the kind of what goes behind is the patents that are in it, the publications that are in there that help to get to the, the, the final stages of that drug being approved. And that's the kind of stuff that's lost in, in the literature quite often. So it's useful yeah. to have it written down. But yeah, so you see it's a lengthy process. But it's kind of reassuring that you don't rush into these things. I mean, the, I guess the consequences of getting it wrong are, are worth spending time getting it right. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it deadly if it goes wrong. Right? So I've, I've known plenty of, uh, of friends who've had drugs all the way into clinical trials, and they're very uh, pragmatic about it when it doesn't go through because they, they had a go. And, you know, it went through and it, although it was effective, it caused high blood pressure or it caused kidney yeah. damage. So you can't have these things happening to patients. Let's move on to a little bit of the politics behind all this. In terms of drug discovery, etc., within state EEZs, Nagoya Protocol seems to have that reasonably well covered as long as people adhere to it. But one of the big issues at the moment is the area or the areas beyond national jurisdiction and this legality of ownership. So where are we with that right now? I mean, is that something which is being close to being resolved or is it still mad, complicated... <laughs> <laughs> argument going on between lawyers and politicians. You probably know the background to this. It was the paper, I think it was called The Deepest of Ironies by Lyle Gloka that came out in the 1990s, about 10 years after the uh, United Nations Convention of Law of the Sea was signed and left out all of the biodiversity, right, basically wasn't really included. So, But then 10 years after that, in the early 2000s, they started to get together this um, open-ended working group and always be worried when somebody says open-ended on anything. So they had <laughs> 10 years of discussions basically deciding that something should be done that was important. And then eventually in 20, I think 2015, 16, 17, I can't remember the exact year, they decided that they would do something and that was the, called the preparatory committee. And to you and I, when you, when you hear the word preparatory committee, you, you don't know what it means. But what it actually means is that they would write a document in which it would state what the law would include, not what the law would say, but what elements it would include. And that included a bunch of different stuff. And you probably know better than me about marine protected areas and, and all those things. But my bit was on 
uh, marine genetic resources and questions on the sharing of benefits because you could up to that point essentially take a sample from the deep sea bed and commercialize a product from that and not worry too much about where the money went afterwards you could you could take it all you know it was really asking the question is that fair and is that something that we should be doing and the other question that you had early on was is that damaging or not to the environment first of all most of biodiscovery takes small samples and as long as you're aware that in a sensitive environment you don't take big samples you don't do damaging sampling types then you're okay because you're not going to take a lot of material but the second question on the sharing of benefits is really tough because there is an argument raging still about equity equitability of the whole thing so basically uh, a lot of the debate now is going out from that starting point Uh it says fair and equitable sharing of benefits Uh, what does that mean so if you go from that viewpoint you have to think about you know a lot of it is to my mind is the sharing of knowledge more than anything else, I think that will benefit people the most, as long as people all have access to the knowledge that's gained by investigating the deep ocean. Is that really what's meant by benefit sharing, is, is just the know-how behind it all? No, I don't think it is. That's the problem. When you write it like that, it says, well, that's fair, that sounds great. But then you think mm-hmm. there's 195 countries. Yep. So where would the incentive for a pharma company to even develop the drug if they know that as soon as it makes money, they have to give it away? Plus, if you've got 195 countries, a bit of mathematics, it means that for every million dollars you make, each country only gets five grand. It's hardly worth it. <laughs> so, so we did work all these things out. My argument was essentially, you know, knowledge gained as long as everybody can use that knowledge equally uh, in their mm-hmm. own countries. And that's the problem that it's not at the moment. It's not an equal playing field. So a country like the USA or the UK has a much better potential for commercializing any findings from deep sea organisms. So that's important to, to recognize that fact. But yeah, like you say, I mean, the, the kind of money that you get out of a drug, say it's a billion dollar molecule, right? It raises a billion, billion dollars per year. And that's possible. The maximum benefit you will ever get out of a a company that develops a drug is about 3% of the royalty. So it's a billion dollar royalty, 3% of that is 30 million, right? So you spread that around the world, it doesn't come out as very much. So is that worth it? Is that even going to pay off the bills for the the mechanism that we're developing here? And the answer is, is probably not. So what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives we came up with as ideas are really good capacity building or partnership building, uh, making sure that everybody is able to benefit equally from the discoveries that we make from the deep sea. And you know everything from training to building of research centers to um, working on conservation measures for the deep ocean as benefits for everyone, rather than trying to get money out of it. Because the money, the money will have to be in the final document just because there will be many countries that, that want it in there with the realization that like the Nagoya and like all the other treaties that we have that, that have monetary benefits, that there probably will be very little eventuating. And it's better to have something now, which could be training or a sharing of knowledge or building of labs and stuff like that now rather than later in 20 years' time. When so as long as something's going back into the system, then yeah. that should work rather than it being perceived as over-exploitation. Yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense because I, I kept thinking about the financial benefits and god you would have to make crazy amounts of money for it to be worth anybody's time but you're right it's more to do with infrastructure and knowledge and so on so it's the kind of debate that's going on at the united nations right now i mean it's, yeah. it's between sessions so we've had this the last three sessions have been intergovernmental committee which is writing the law and we're getting to the stages where some of the bits of the treaty are looking pretty good good and those are the bits that i don't understand like marine protected areas and stuff marine genetic resources we're still at loggerheads because of this distinction between the seafloor and the water column yeah that's weird isn't it when the lawyers yeah. get involved in the say, no, the seabed and the water column are two separate things. They don't really function without each other. <laughs> no, no, you try and explain to people that a sea bacteria may, may float around for a bit and go on the seafloor for a bit, or you might yeah. have a sponge that, that when it spawns, the larvae go everywhere and then they settle on the seafloor again. Well, you've got holotherians that move along the seafloor and then jump into the water column and relocate. 
I guess, a fair game as long as they leave the bottom. But Europe is trying to broker a pragmatic solution that doesn't pay heed to that distinction. It also doesn't mention the words that often the different uh, parties mention, which is the freedom of the high seas, which is the water yes. column, so you can fish whatever you want and it's yeah. yours, and uh, common heritage of humankind, which is the seafloor, which means that what you find and what you do must be shared. And again, it's obvious from the treaty at the moment, from the UNCLOS treaty, the original one, that you must share the knowledge. There needs to be better connectivity between people doing the science and people making the policy, that they know what's going on. And again, a lot of talk is about this mechanism that they call the Access and Benefit Sharing Clearinghouse or whatever they want to call it. To my mind, it shouldn't be a database that does everything. It should just be able to point people at the best practice database that already exists out there. So you might go to OBIS for some data, you might go to Octopus for some other data or whatever databases are out there. You don't necessarily need to replicate stuff in that clearinghouse. So along those lines, one thing I really wanted to ask you, and this is a genuine, I don't know where I sit with this, is I was reading a study recently that was, I mean, it was a scientific paper, so it was trying not to be biased one way or another, but it, reading between the lines, it seems that there was people quite annoyed at the fact that, oh, I think there's 13,000 genetic sequences have been patented based on MGRs, and of those, 47% are owned by one particular German company, and that seems to be portrayed as being, this is not right. You know, a commercial enterprise is essentially owning biodiversity, and when you read it, you think, oh, I don't like the idea of that, that doesn't sit right. But then at the same time, so what? What does that even mean? Does it stop other people sequencing the same genes? Why, if at all, should we be bothered by that? I read that paper when it came out in a long conversation with the lead author. The issue is that often a patents will cite genetic sequences mm -hmm. as examples or to say, we got this from here. Uh, and then they make a, a new sequence which they patent. So the actual number of sequences mentioned in patents and number of sequences actually patented are very different. So that paper didn't uh -huh. make that distinction. So there's a, there's a problem there. We did actually ask the company in question, I won't mention on the podcast, <laughs> but you can find it if you like. They actually came to a meeting and they said, basically, we've done our own due diligence on this data. And most of these sequences are, in fact, just genetic sequences that we're mentioning because they are from the database. And we need to cite them as evidence that we have done something novel and different. And there's only very few sequences which are heavily engineered, which are actually patented. So again, the numbers are wrong. The numbers for terrestrial environment are much, much greater. So again, there was no comparison made to that. Yeah. Uh, again, which is, a, which is an interesting challenge. That work should be redone. And I believe it is being redone right now. Can you patent a genetic sequence? If you sequence the entire genome, of species A, could you actually patent that? You can patent an invention. So in some places you can patent the sequence a raw sequence, but it's very rare in some countries. Mm -hmm. But most of the countries, you have to have done something very clever and inventive to it. So it has right. to be non-obvious. You have to alter its original state. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of patents like that myself. And there is indeed a lot of genetic engineering going on into these sequences in order to make them interesting and different. Uh, and yeah. exciting so yeah but anyway i mean there, there are companies that are doing far worse than that and some companies who admit to doing this again i won't mention their name have a massive in-house database of sequences that they derive that they basically go out they collect a massive bacteria from the middle of the ocean they then sequence them and keep them in their own in-house database whilst using the external database the, the publicly available global database they download that and compare their sequences that are secret to oh. the, the open database that's available that's not very sporting is it it's not very sporting not to give that <laughs> data back so again my, my, my feeling would be to encourage those companies to deposit those sequences that they're not patenting back into the main database so that we can all benefit there's even talk about right now asking for benefit sharing on digital sequence information, which is basically DNA information. Uh, I've been involved in debates there defining the concept of digital sequence information. That was a, a labor of love. I spent eight months of hell trying to write a report for the <laughs> Convention on Biological Diversity. And they know I felt that it was hell, by the way, so it's, they're not yeah. going to be too upset by me saying this. But um, the report that came out of it was, was very helpful. It just basically said, this is what it is and this is what it isn't. 
uh, and you mm -hmm. can use that as a definition if you want or not. And they ended up adopting it mostly, but now it's going to travel up to the biodiversity convention in Kunming at some point and see whether it stays as it is, as my definition or as a, a different definition. But the point is that, that those sequences are really important to all of biology and they should be shared. I mean, they're critical for things like biodiversity conservation. Yeah, absolutely. We need to know what's out there. We need to, if you want to do any barcoding, you need to have a reference database. And again, without yeah. that, you can't do it. So yeah, my feeling is that that data should remain open, available to everyone. If you make a massive invention, you know, massive changes to it, you should be able to patent it because that way you can commercialize. And, you know, if you develop a drug based out of it, a gene sequence from a deep sea organism, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to commercialize that and then share the benefits. The question is at the moment, and what we're asking at the, the BBNJ treaty, is how do we share any benefits that might arise from that? If, if it is a billion dollar drug, do we put that 30 million back into the pot? And then what happens to that? In any case, along the way, if you take people with you and you involve a whole bunch of international collaborators, quite often you do the training on the way. Leaving all the legal jargon behind, just I've always wanted to ask you this. What is the weirdest thing you've ever come across when you've been poking around deep sea sediments or, or other extreme environments? The stuff from the Mariana Trench continues to fascinate. We got this sample from the Jamstech Extreme Biosphere Research Center, Koki Horikoshi and his yes. lab. Gave Alan Bull the sample in Kent, who grew the bacterium and then uh, my good fellow identified it as Demococcus abyssii, and it was a true high-pressure strain. We got some compounds out of there, and those compounds were interesting at the beginning just because they had really interesting properties against uh, parasites. And we never pursued that because they were difficult to get enough of. But now more recently, what we found is that it makes one compound which has... I think at the moment, the, the highest absorption of infrared of any compound ever found from nature. We don't know why. I going to say, why? <laughs> yeah, infrared <laughs> absorbers. So we got the, the last line of the papers, we don't know why. It's, an, it's a really fascinating compound. And more recently, the sort of properties that these things seem to be able to stabilize free radicals and things like that. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. And we don't know why the deep sea would do that. And we have a whole series of these compounds. And I think it's about 20 right now that all belong to the same family, all from the same strain. They all seem to have slightly different colors. So you could make a rainbow out of these things. The first work that the first student, while down my did on these things and uh, Bertalan Johash is doing this right now as well as a continuation of that work. We don't know why they're doing it. There seems to be a really good reason why this deep sea organism needs this particular type of compound that is able to shuttle electrons and have different colors. We don't know why. Oh, that is weird. Yeah. Good answer. One of the things on the on the Deep Sea podcast that Tom and I have never discussed is gardening. <laughs> you, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Because I seem to recall in about, was it 2013, that you had a marine species-inspired entry into the Chelsea Flower Show? Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, which is the weirdest bit of public outreach I think I've ever seen. <laughs> so it was flower arranging. My wife was friends with Anne Allen, who was part of the Scottish Association of Flower Arranging Societies. And they got the bid that year for the Chelsea Flower Show. So what they do is they make a massive flower arrangement. And then they said to me, well, we're interested in, in representing the work you do in your lab. So they came to visit and they looked at things and they, they got ideas of pictures of stuff. And, and actually what they ended up making was a, um, a coral reef out of flowers with a big framework in it. And not only that, they won a gold medal at Chelsea. And so I filled in my, my record of, of public engagement that year. Port Lethen Primary School, 30 people. Drum Academy, over 100 people. And then all of a sudden it says Chelsea Flower Show attendees 178,000 <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's kind of nice just to have that in there but it was yeah it was weird but also these people who were doing the flower arranging were my biggest proponents they had made a little booklet about the science as they understood selling this this idea of of biodiscovery to all the people that would watch the exhibit which was really cool that I know booklet. I remember I thought it was I thought it was brilliant I, was, I actually laughed out loud because I, I saw it and I think and that looks about what that looks about and a couple of clicks then your face came up and it's like oh yeah it was wonderful it was a really good thing to be involved in and uh, I still have wonderful pictures of that we've done something similar recently with our composer here, Paul Mueller. He composed the song of the, song of the ocean uh, right, yeah. with, with Graham Davies. 
And uh, we had it sung by a choir from around the world. So again, uh, the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative managed to recruit 50, 60 scientists from the world to sing. And it was all cut together very nicely and with good deep sea footage from a lot of organizations that had wonderful footage. And uh, it came out really well. If you could, you know, link it to the song in the podcast. Yeah. Oh, well, great. Do, yeah. But that was, again, a way to get out to, uh, to different people. Uh, different audiences and again that's yeah. important I hope this podcast reaches a, a different audience as well of, of people that were interested in listening to how this this whole process works and also the kind of work we're doing behind the scenes to make sure that the, the oceans are preserved for future generations I think it's only talking to you Marcel that we can flip so easily between deep sea drug discovery and politics the United Nations and the Chelsea Flower Show <laughs> <laughs> so, on behalf of myself and Tom thank you very much for coming on the deep sea podcast thank you Alan thank you Tom So there you go, that was Marcel. So we don't need to be worried about big, horrible pharma companies patenting biodiversity. At least I think I think that's what we said. Yes, but I, I think that was really useful, especially as this is going to become something that's in the public awareness. And I think the words used when people first become aware of this is really going to shape them. And unfortunately, I think it's going to fall off the back of all of the COVID vaccine yeah. mistrust. I think the, the discovery pipeline is amazing. I mean, I remember sitting there, I saw a diagram of it and I thought, oh, that's how it works. You know, you do this, you do that, you get a bit of money here. And then you see the timeline at the bottom. You're like, oh, geez, and, and the expense. 20 years to get a paracetamol on, on the shelf, you know? And some of these companies, you know, I'm, I'm sure they are greedy, but it costs so much to have the faith that this might become a useful drug. You want to make money off it at the other end of it. Well, plus it seems to be that thing where you might have 20 different potentials and you know that only one of them is going to go, but you still have to invest in the other 19 to find out which is the one that's going to be a winner. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're knowingly going in on this, knowing you're going to shed a lot of money on nothing just to filter it down into the one that might make you money. It's, it's a really odd industry and I think it's maybe a, a, quite a misunderstood industry. I love this man in a trench bacteria. I want to see that. Although, to be honest, I must have some in my fridge. Just just on the door. In the seals. Always builds up in there. I love how colourful it is. Yeah. Didn't he show you them all isolated? Yeah, like he says, it was a rainbow. They're really vivid colours. That was a different one. That was the one I took him from somewhere else. Oh, right. Uh, call me up one day and says, you better come around and have a look at this. It's quite worrying getting that from a, a fella like that. You better come look at this. One of them was just black. It was just jet black and he's like what on earth is that for a while there Marcel sent me off whenever I was going around the world he basically said just find something we'll do it all by board of course but come back with something from places that no one's ever been before and I said oh yeah that sounds like a challenge <laughs> I think the best one I got I think was from three metres under the sea floor at five and a half thousand metres in the polar region and an underwater lake of uranium that was quite interesting oh yeah there was some weird stuff wasn't there yeah but I do have a story about Marcel go on you were there Tom do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it. It involves this one. you, me, Marcel, and it involves the Mariana Trench. Does it involve us acting with professionalism and a, yes. a, a level of decorum you'd expect from scientists? Yes. yes, absolutely. The last sentence of this will prove that. It was my leaving <laughs> doing Aberdeen. The place we used to work was a big hangar out in the middle of nowhere, so there wasn't much to do and we didn't have a lot of booze. So we're all sitting in a hangar. Sitting on floats, as is tradition. Sitting on glass fear of buoyancy, yep. And all I had was a a bottle of absinthe that someone gave me 20 years beforehand that I'd never dared open because it's so ridiculously potent. And Tom had a water bottle full of Challenger deep water from 11,000 metres that had been sat in the hangar baking in the sun for three and a half years. So we came up with this idea. I said, why don't we just drink the Mariana water? Because it's a leaving do, you know, it's a big deal. And then we thought, oh, we better not. That's kind of gross. Uh, so we came up with the bright idea of putting a shot of Mariana trench water into a glass and then doubling it with 
70% absinthe. The saltiness of Challenger Deepwater, actually, I felt brought out the flavour of the absinthe and made something better than the sum of its parts. It was like a pickleback. It was a bit like a pickleback. Yeah. Uh, it was all right. It, it was, was quite good. It was a sensation. And yeah. Uh, it went down better with some people than others. <laughs> he shall remain nameless. Somebody had a very immediate reaction. Certainly did. Anyway... <laughs> Fast forward a couple of hours, we'd found ourselves downtown Aberdeen and some of the more local guys came in and one of them was Marcel and he came in and saw us at the bar and he's like, hey man, how you doing, everything else? I'm like, oh yeah, it's fine, fine. We just took a shot of Challenge to Deep Water and he looked at me as if to say, what? <laughs> you just drank. I'm really interesting in potentially unknown strains of bacteria that have been sat there just doing all sorts of things for last year. And he says, oh, it's okay, it's okay, we've put a shot of absinthe in it. And he sort of sat back and thought about it for a second. He's thinking about all those colours growing in his lab. Yeah, he put his hand on my shoulder and went, by adding the absinthe, Alan, you did the right thing. Because <laughs> 70% alcohol <laughs> killed everything in the water. And it's like, well, there we go. That was a seal of approval from the head of the chemistry department. <laughs> we were essentially the first trial. We should be viewed as heroes. I think so, yeah. Pioneers of absinthe and Hadel deepest water in the world yeah it was i actually remember it being quite nice honestly it was like That's a pickleback the saltiness sort of counteracted it quite nicely you couldn't drink a lot of it though because it's still 70 percent. yeah not a good idea and as we know from the rapid effect it had on a colleague uh, it was still quite potent yeah i had to remove him from the bar yes because he'd gone into standby mode <laughs> yeah he did he went into standby mode on the stairs in my defense, this was a, a little souvenir bit of water I saved. It wasn't required for a sample. You know, just before it seemed like I was doing something quite frivolous with a, a precious sample, this was going to go back over the side. So I just held onto it as a little souvenir. It's one of those things you hold onto it and then it feels wrong just pouring it down the sink. Like, this is just yeah. a challenge of deep water. What are we going to do with this? We rediscovered it the other day and now I might make it part of a, an exhibition. <laughs> It's oh, just yeah, it still a, exists, It's it? just a jar of, yeah, it's just a jar of water, but it's important water, so I thought I might make it educational, let people know that they've held it. Let people know that a glass of water from Challenger Deep looks exactly the same as a glass of water from the tap, and if you drink it, you'll suddenly be alerted to the fact it's seawater. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. Our email is in the show notes if you'd like to write in with a question, comment, or your own tales from the high seas. And there's also links to our social media on there as well, so feel free to get in touch. As ever, we'll deep see you next time, and we abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Armatus Oceanic. If you would like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can provide technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can provide fact-checking, storytelling, presentations, podcast. However, we want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Rapture City, Plasmid Research and Development, Log number 426. Batch number 118B. Pleasant minty taste. Ice powers. Approved for phase 2 trials. <laughs>